Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to open it and hear your truth, your very words, the very word of God to us. God, we want our hearts to be set on fire with your word. You told Jeremiah that your word is like a fire and a hammer. It's burning and it's pounding and we want it burning and pounding in our hearts and minds. We want it transforming us, affecting us and propelling us into faithful living. Lord, I would confess that I too often ignore your word and things that I know to be true. I don't often enough act upon them, but we're asking that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to live differently. God, I want to live in obedience to your word. I want doctrine to be on fire in my heart. I want the truth of the resurrection to affect my decisions, my spending, my purity, my holiness, my giving, my serving. What I spend my life on, I want to be affected by the truth that you have risen from the dead, are ruling and reigning in glory, and are coming again. We want that to happen in us. And so, Holy Spirit, please do that. Only you can do that. Only you could transform us for the glory of Christ through these truths. Please anoint me now to teach and preach in a way that is consonant with your word and brings glory to Jesus. And please help us to hear and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to look a little bit at Palm Sunday. We have an account here in, in Matthew 21. And we're going to, we're going to kind of look at, at a few things as they pertain to the Messiah, Jesus as king. We're going to look at the reveal of the true king, which is Palm Sunday. Then we're going to look at the reversal of kingship, which is a cross. And then the resurrection of the king. And then the redirection by the king, which is the Great Commission. And then the return of the king, which is a wonderful book by Tolkien. No, it is the return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign in glory. So that's kind of where we're going. You can leave those subtitles up the whole time that I'm talking if you want to remind us. We're talking about the reveal of the true king. The Messiah first came in secret and then was revealed on Palm Sunday. Did you ever notice that as you're reading the Gospels? It's the strangest thing. Jesus would heal a leper, right? Something that's like, it's only, it's only done one other time in all the Old Testament history, like never been done before. He would heal a leper and then he'd say, shh, don't tell anybody. It's the strangest thing. There'd be two blind men Jesus would heal them, their eyes would be open, and then he'd say, shh, don't tell anybody. There'd be a a, a withered man, uh, excuse me, a withered man, a man with a withered hand, and, and Jesus would heal it. Others would see it and come to him, and it would say in Matthew 12 that he healed them all, all of them, and then he told them all, shh, shh, don't say anything. It's so weird. And then he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's Peter and the boys and Jesus is transfigured into glory. And there's Mo and Eli, Moses and Elijah, appear with him there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's like the gnarliest thing ever. Peter doesn't even know what to say. Peter's like, "Um, this is really good. I'm going to set up a tent. 
It's literally what he said. I'll set up tents for all of us. This is great. Let's just camp out in this glorious moment on the mountain. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Go back down the mountain. Oh, and by the way, shh, callate mio. Don't say anything. It is the strangest thing. And then all of a sudden on Palm Sunday, the day that we're remembering now, the beginning of Passion Week, he purposefully reveals himself to the nation of Israel as Messiah the King. Matthew 21, verse 1. And when they, Jesus and the disciples, had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now, two things going on here. Number one, a really cool thing to say to people, The Lord has need of it. It's a nice surfboard. It's a nice coat. It's a nice car. The Lord has need of it. Just try it. Maybe it'll work. The other thing that's going on is Jesus is clearly setting the stage here. Whether he prearranged it by going into that other village and said, look, I'm going to send a couple of my disciples who are going to come get this donkey thing, send it with him, or just supernaturally, which is what I think he did it, he is setting the stage. Okay, boys, we're here at the Mount of Olives. I want you to go get the donkey. Verse 4. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, this is Zechariah 9.9 being quoted, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So this was done so that this scripture might be fulfilled. Scriptures that were given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in advance to Israel about the coming Messiah, the coming King that they were all expecting are going to be fulfilled right now. And Jesus is deliberately setting the stage to be revealed. This is a big reveal. No more shh. Now it's look. Verse 6. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road. This was a thing that Israel would do sometimes for kings, right? For royalty. We see that when Jehu became a king in Second Kings, they threw down their coats and the king would walk on them. It's a sign of submission and elevation of the king spread out their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the palm trees. John's gospel tells us it was palm trees, and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him, and those who followed after, were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Now, There's real clear messianic stuff going on here and and at least national king. Okay, so this is happening during the Passover celebration, during the Passover celebration. And Jerusalem at this time generally had 20 to 50,000 inhabitants depending on which historian you read. But during the time of Passover, Jews were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the Jewish historian Josephus says that the population of Jerusalem would swell to two and a half million at this time. 
Now, Josephus was sometimes given to exaggeration, I'm told. It may not be two and a half million, but there was a lot of people in town. And they would all gather at the temple for the celebrations that were going on there for Passover. Now, remember what Passover represented. Passover represented for Israel, God supernaturally delivering them from an oppressor, Egypt at the time. And at this moment, Israel is under the dominion of an oppressor. Rome right now. And Jesus appears fulfilling a prophecy. Behold, Israel, your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. Oh, wow, Israel's getting the picture. And then they're throwing down their garments and he's walking on the donkey on top of those. Everyone in the culture is getting the picture. Wait a minute, this guy is claiming to be king. And then they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Son of David? David was a king whose throne is supposed to endure forever. Whoa, Hosanna? Hosanna means deliver us or save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Whoa, whoa. That's a quote of Psalm 118, which all the Jews know was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. There is no mistake that everyone on the Mount of Olives this day is saying, this man, Jesus, is a king. Now, the Mount of Olives is very near to the Temple Mount. It's separated by the Brook Kidron, just a little brook. I'll show you how close it is. Here's a picture of my family and I there, summer before last. There we are. Look how cute Daisy was. She had this little headdress thing on that we bought in Jerusalem for her. My son has a really funny fedora on. <laughs> so we're sitting on the Mount of Olives right where this took place. Right at the road where this took place. There was one main road going down the Mount of Olives during the time of Jesus. It's still there. That was the path that he would have taken. All the Israelites would have taken down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Brook and into the Eastern Gate, which just above my son's head, just above his fedora, is where the ancient Eastern Gate would have been, where they would have entered in to celebrate Passover. Now, you know, it's a photo, so it looks further, but the Temple Mount that's in the background, the gold thing is the Dome of the Rock, right? That's not Jewish, that's Muslim. But that's where the temple once stood, If people are yelling and singing on the Mount of Olives, you can hear them over on the Temple Mount. Now during Passover, the governors in Jerusalem, the Roman governors would say this, let's increase security around the Temple Mount. That happens now during Jewish celebrations. Let's increase security around the Temple Mount because right now it's kind of like their 4th of July Passover is. It's their, their, their day of the independence. They're celebrating God's deliverance from an oppressor. We're oppressors. We should kind of buckle down, make sure we have some extra security. There's like maybe a couple million people in town. This is crazy. They're all at the Temple Mount feeling this national zeal, this hope and this expectation of Messiah. And so things are tense on the Temple Mount. All of a sudden you hear hundreds of people yelling, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jewish ears were going, whoa, 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 whoa. That's why it says in the verse they were saying, who is this? And Roman ears were going, whoa. Hey, there is no king but Caesar. Who is this and what's going on? Turn now to John. John chapter 19, excuse me, John chapter 12. 
as we see his account and glean a little more. John's account will give us a few more details here. John 12, verse 12. Same event. John 12, 12. On the next day, Palm Sunday, the great multitude who had come to the feast, Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Palm trees were significant that they were waving those. The palms were a symbol of national freedom. 200 years earlier in the Maccabean revolt, the palms became the symbol of freedom so that the Jews, after that revolt, minted a coin that on one side had the palm fronds. So when they're waving palm fronds, it's saying, freedom is coming. Hosanna to the son of David. This is a tense moment in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, fear not, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming and seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him that they were a part of one of the most incredible moments in the history of the world, the revealing of the Messiah. What had been anticipated and longed for all throughout Israel's years, what had been written about by Israel's prophets, what had been in secret, what had been questioned, who many had been speculated, is this him, is that him? Now is the great moment of the reveal. Now there's something that would be interesting to the Jewish mind at that time. For 500 years prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Jewish rabbis had been teaching this. This is in their writings, the Talmud Sanhedrin 98, part A. It says this, when Messiah comes, if Israel is ready, he will come on a white horse with the clouds and glory. If Israel is not ready, he will come on a donkey. Isn't that interesting? 500 years, the rabbis have been teaching that to Israel. Here comes one who is claiming to be the king, one who has raised the dead, one who has fed the multitudes, one who has walked on water, one who has opened the eyes of the blind, Here he comes, and he's riding on a donkey. What Israel wasn't ready for was a great reversal in the concept of king and kingdom that they were about to see in Jesus. The reversal of kingship. This is the Messiah now as the suffering servant. Turn to John 19. You see, normally when Israel was thinking king and son of David, they were thinking warrior king. They were thinking deliverer from Rome. They were thinking one who would break the power of the oppressor with military might. 
But they had forgotten the allusions to the suffering servant throughout Isaiah, and particularly Isaiah 53. And there was a reversal of kingdom, of kingdom and kingship. Jesus was revealed as king, now the reversal, the cross showing us that our worldly concept of power and victory and kingship is not God's concept. Bringing to life for us this thing that when the disciples were arguing amongst themselves, which they frequently did, who among us is the greatest? Jesus would say, you know who's the greatest? The greatest is the one who's the servant of all. The first shall be last. Before the cross, he was telling them, there's, there's a reversal coming. The world doesn't have it right. The king that I am, the qualities of my kingdom work according to a whole different economy. You think that the first will be first. You think that the greatest among you is the one who proves himself to be greatest, the one who has the most might, the most reputation, the most wealth, the greatest giftings, the most know-how, the best connections, the best education. They're the best-looking one. They come from the best family. I'm telling you that in my kingdom, the greatest is the servant of all. I'm reversing everything and I'm blowing apart your concept of king and kingship. I, the king, came to you on a donkey. You're not ready for this. I'm reversing everything by suffering on the cross. Now, John 19 says, verse one, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him blows in the face. He was clearly claiming to be king before because now they're mocking him for that. Verse 4, And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the son of God. When Pilate therefore heard the statement, he was the more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, you don't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has a greater sin. Speaking either of Caiaphas or Judas, who knows? Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Uh Uh-oh. Now they're playing the king card. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Listen, they're, they're, listen to me. When you're evangelizing, your friends say, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He never claimed to be the Son of God. He never claimed to be the King. Here you have all of his enemies saying, he claimed to be the King. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. That's called positive evidence from a hostile source. That's the strongest evidence admissible in a court of law. That means the enemy 
whom it would not behoove to admit the fact is admitting the fact Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and the King. Okay? He didn't claim to be a prophet or a good guy or anything else. He claimed to be Messiah, the King. What verse was I in? Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, got that place. Verse 14. Now it was a day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, 6 a.m. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered and said, We have no king but Caesar. So he then delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. If Israel is ready, Messiah will come in the clouds with glory on a white horse. If not, he'll come on a donkey. Israel wasn't ready for the reveal of Messiah. They weren't ready for one who would give himself for the sins of many. They weren't ready for the cross. Jesus is bringing to the world a whole different kind of kingdom. And it's not pleasing to the population. The population here went from the beginning of the week crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, save now, to the end of the week crying out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. In a week's time. You see, Jesus was revealed as the king, but it had no true effect on the population. Even those who were saying, Hail, Hosanna to the Son of David. Where was their voice now, this morning? Where were the cries of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Where were the palm fronds? Where were the garments? In other words, the voice that was carrying the day was away with him, away with him, crucify him. The reveal had no true effect on the population. The reversal was unacceptable to them. What had to happen next was the resurrection of the king. This is the Messiah vindicated. Turn to Matthew 27 as we see this. You guys following me? Is this making sense? Okay, we have a long ways to go. Just warning you. The resurrection of the king, the Messiah vindicated. Start reading in Matthew 27. We read this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating now. Matthew 27, verse 62. I love the sound of Bible pages ruffling. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, verse 63 of Matthew 27 now, and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, 
I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, Easter Sunday, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying and go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, here's your alibi. Here's what you're to say, that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mount which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Stop right there. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, following on his reveal as Messiah the King, and then his cross, is proof that a new kind of kingdom has come into the world. That the kingdom of God has broken into this world. That a new, truer, better king of kings has come and changed everything. And it doesn't make sense to our minds that have been touched with sin. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. The greatest is the servant of all. The normal ways of climbing the ladder and ascending to greatness don't work in the economy of the new kingdom. They're not what we see in the life of the new king, for he suffered and died. And he suffered for others. He gave himself as a ransom for many. He was broken and bruised on our behalf. He died with common criminals to each of his sides. The sin of the world was placed upon him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Abandoned by the Father in that moment. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God poured out on this king. And by every estimation of the world, apart from knowing the end of the story, we would say, what a horrible loss. What a, what a horrible ending. 
What a false king. But you see, Christ's resurrection from the dead is proof what we very seldom believe. That we are now, as sons and daughters of this king, members of a different kind of kingdom. And we don't have to function according to the rules of this world anymore. That we have been shown a different way of being, a different way of living, a different way of existing. That we are called to live lives that are patterned after the king who was willing to suffer for others. And then who was raised in glory. And we live in a horrible tension because we live in a world that is absolutely contrary to these concepts. Jesus said, you want to be my follower? You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. But the world has taught us to esteem ourselves and fight for our rights. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for others. Consider others to be more important than yourself. But we've been taught to consider number one and to look out for number one. And so we live in this horrible, difficult tension of being in this world, but not of this world. We've been brought into a new kingdom. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. And it's a real challenge to live in the the midst of that conflict. That's why we're so excited that Christ is coming again. That there is another reversal coming all together. The day when everything that has gone wrong will be ultimately and forever set right by this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords. And so that gives us hope to persevere in the conflict, in the battle. This this gives us some hope for those days when we want to assert self, when we want to demand my rights, when I want to be recognized, when I want to be better than, when I want to be right, when I want to win the argument, when I want to come out on top. I remember, wait a minute, I'm part of a new kingdom. I wouldn't believe it unless my king had rose from the dead and so vindicated it, validated it, proved it to be true once and for all. So now I'm free to lose. I'm free to give away. I'm free to serve. I'm free to not have to be first. I'm free to not have to win because my king suffered, but he rose again. Therefore, he has shown me that the way, the way, to true greatness in the kingdom of God is the way of the cross. There is no resurrection without the cross. That's what Satan wanted Jesus to do. Satan tempted him in Matthew chapter four and said, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have all the glory, none of the pain. Let's skip the cross. That's what Satan tells us every day. Let's skip the cross. Let's go for the glory. Let's avoid the pain. Let's skip the cross. Let's skip denying self. Let's, cons- let's skip considering others as more important than ourselves. Let's skip being willing to be wronged, willing to be wrong, willing to suffer. Let's just skip it all and go for the glory. But we have been shown a better way by the resurrection of the king. And therefore, we have a redirection from the king. A redirection from the king. This is now the Messiah in open. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me 
in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This is a redirection. Peter was on his way to go fishing again. I'm just going to go about business as usual. The reveal of the king had no real effect upon the general population. They went from singing Hosanna to singing crucify him. But now that Christ is risen in glory, it necessitates a redirection in our lives. If Christ is truly risen, then Christ is truly king. Then we are truly called to be allegiant to the king. And he said, all authority has been given unto me. I'm the boss. I'm the Lord. I'm the Messiah. I'm the name above all names. All authority has been given to me. So I'm going to tell you what to do with your life. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And having seen him, risen in glory, what else could they do? You see, the great commission is connected with the glorious resurrection. They thought all was lost. They thought the king had died, but the king is alive and he's risen in glory. And now that they see him and they worship him and he says, all authority is given unto me, what could they do but in awe of his glorious resurrection, respond in obedience. And so all of the disciples gave their lives for the gospel going to the nations. Every single one of them was willing to be poured out that the gospel might go forward. Every single one of them said, I will obey the call to make disciples. My life has been redirected because my king has been resurrected. All of them were willing to say that. They were commissioned and they were commissioned in awe. Jesus had all authority, so they had to obey. John adds to it and gives us this little vignette. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, this is Easter Sunday, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom alechem. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They're in awe. He's risen. They rejoiced. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Okay, I'm risen. Peace. As a father has sent me, I also send you. I was sent into the world on mission, Jesus is saying, and that mission ended at the cross. No, it didn't end at the cross. That mission ended in resurrection glory, but there was no resurrection without the cross. I am sending you on a mission. It will end in resurrection glory, but there is no resurrection without the way of the cross. Father sent me, I also send you. Now the disciples are seeing because their king is resurrected, their life has been redirected. They are now commissioned, sent people. But there's one more part to it. Luke adds, Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the church. And the redirecting was now empowered. The commissioning was given unction. The sending was given substance because the Holy Spirit was given to the church. They were redirected. They were authorized in the commissioning. They were propelled in the sending. They were empowered on Pentecost. Jesus gave them power. Now what is this power? It is the same power that rose Christ from the dead, the Gospels tell us. The same power that rose Christ from the dead. The power of the Holy Spirit lives in us, comes upon us, that we might be witnesses of his resurrection. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth, so that Peter on the day of Pentecost, who denied Christ three times on the day of the cross, stood and preached the risen Lord. And 3,000 were baptized that day. You see, the king has redirected us. Our lives now have clarity and purpose. Clarity and purpose. We don't have to wonder what our lives are about anymore. We don't have to wonder what I'm ultimately going to do with my life. We don't have to wonder about every decision. We have been redirected into the Great Commission. We have been drafted by the king who has risen. We have been sent by the one who has all authority. We have been given power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead. Therefore, our lives have clarity and purpose. Listen, our past is secure under the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Our future is secure and we shall be in glory with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And our present has purpose then. Having been cleansed, washed, and sanctified, knowing that we will also be glorified, knowing that we have new life and are sent people, we have purpose. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that our lives are no longer our own because the king was revealed. The concept of kingship and kingdom was reversed. The king was resurrected to vindicate it, to prove it, to show it. And the king has redirected us. Our lives are no longer our own. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, you know what? I've been reading from the New American Standard. I'm going to read this section in the New Living Translation. It's just helpful in this passage. You know what we all need? We all need New American Standard and New Living Translation parallel Bibles. I wonder if they even make one of those. They make parallel Bibles where there's translations side by side, but we here at Reality Carp, we need that one. New American Standard NLT because your schizophrenic pastor is going back and forth, back and forth. 
Okay, look at this. 2 Corinthians. We'll start in chapter 4 for a little context. How about chapter 4, verse 1? <clears throat> Second Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone and distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. If the good news is preached, which is preached, is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is a god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So you see... We don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light, that is the light of the gospel, shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger, danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. It's good for us to remember. Verse 14, we know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will also rise us with Jesus. Raise us with Jesus, excuse me. And present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs our troubles and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will, be, will last forever. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we will groan inside. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. 
God himself has prepared us for this and as a guarantee has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by sight. Walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, listen, our goal is to please Him. Your life has clarity and purpose. What's my goal? To please Him. For we must, watch this now, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Pause right there for a moment. Now, this is not talking about judgment for sins. Christ was already judged in our place upon the cross. That is another judgment. We'll read it in a moment. But this is a judgment for believers where we will be judged not for sins, but according to faithfulness. What did I do with the time, gifts, talent, resources, sphere of influence that was given to me by God? To do what? To please him. In what way? by making disciples of all the nations, by living a sent life in the power of the Holy Spirit, by taking the good news of Christ's resurrection from the dead to everybody that needs to hear it. We will stand before Christ and be judged according to our faithfulness or lack thereof. How we spent our lives, what our lives were given for, we will all stand and give an answer for our resources, gifts, talents, time, and treasure before God. When it says evil there, literally in the Greek, it means good for nothing. Again, this is not a judgment for sin. But what did we do with regards to the great commission in this life? We'll give an answer before Christ. Verse 11 says, Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others about the gospel. God knows we're sincere, and I hope you know this too, he says to the church in Corinth. Verse 12, are we commending ourselves to you again? In other words, are we boasting and making it about ourselves? No, we're giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. Paul says, I'm nuts for Jesus, I admit it. And if we are in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Why was Paul fully given to mission and willing to give his whole life for it? The love of Christ compelled him. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. Here's the verse I want you to see, verse 15. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who was died and was raised for them. The king was revealed, but it didn't have much of an effect. The idea of king and kingship was reversed, and it was confusing and confounding. But when he was resurrected, everything suddenly became clear. There's a different way to live. And so we've been redirected to live for the glory of God. And we will give an account when the king returns. 
the return of the king. This is the Messiah enthroned, ruling, and reigning visibly over all creation. On that day, we will give an account. I want us to see just a picture of this glorious day. The book of Revelation, chapter 22. You guys still okay? The book of Revelation, chapter 22. If some of you can't stand a sermon this long, it's okay if you leave. I'm serious. I won't be offended. The return of the king, the Messiah enthroned, ruling and reigning visibly over all creation. Revelation chapter 22, just a snapshot of the restoration of all things. Verse 1, New American Standard. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. See, this is a whole different gig. Everything's brand new. The curse has been reversed. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Healing. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants, us, shall see him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. No question about our identity then and who we belong to. Verse 5, and there shall no longer be any night, and they shall have no need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, said the Lord, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. You have been given new life in Christ Jesus. Your past is secure. Your future is sure. Our present must be settled. For what and for whom will we live? What will you do with the new life you have been given? You are no longer controlled by sin. It's no longer your master, we learned last week. But we must also obey the great commission to make disciples of all the nations. What portion of your life is being spent on the gospel going forward? What portion of your life? What will you do with your new life? You will do many things. You will surf and hunt and fish and picnic and hang out with family and you'll do many things. You'll play music and you'll have fun and you'll bake bread and you'll do all these awesome things. You'll have kids and you'll get married and you'll celebrate. You'll do all these things that are good to do in new life and a part of common grace and are meaningful before God. You'll work and that's meaningful before God and the gifts he gave you. But you must ask yourself now because you will be asked then what portion of your life is being spent on Christ's endeavor to make disciples of all the nations. If you cannot give an account for it now, how will you give an account for it then? What investment are you, not anyone on your behalf, What investment are you making in the Great Commission? 
How are disciples being made directly through your life, your endeavor? Can you point to it? Can you give an account? If you can't give an account now, what will the account be then? Jesus was not afraid of return on investment. He said, you invest your life for my glory now, you'll receive a hundredfold. Peter said, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. We've left farms and houses and businesses and mothers and brothers and we've left everything. And Jesus said, nobody gives up anything for my kingdom's sake that will not be rewarded a hundredfold. Jesus wasn't afraid of the concept of return on investment. What is the return on the investment of your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for rising from the dead and redirecting our lives. And Lord, I have to pray because I know this is like a long, heavy, and heavy-handed message. But Lord, I just don't want my life to slip by and always be living for myself. You've already said to us that we have new life so that we no longer live for ourselves but for you and your glory. And so please, Lord, our our flesh would get religious now, want to condemn us and others. Many of us have others in mind. Satan would want to come along and condemn us and make us feel like bad Christians and we're not doing enough and make us leave here sad. But your Holy Spirit would come and say, you've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have a brand new identity. You are brought into the loving work of the king to save the whole world. And in his name, because of his love, you are sent to take his gospel and his glory forward. Enjoy that, my son. Enjoy that, my daughter. Spend your life freely on the gospel of the king. So help us with that, Lord. Thank you that the fields are white unto harvest right here in our town. And so we ask for boldness. We ask for unction. We ask for power. We ask for our lives to be shaken, that we might see that we are truly alive in Christ and that we might truly give our lives in service to him. Thank you for all the other good things we get to do in life that are fun and life-giving and from you. Show us how to follow you into mission for your own glory, Lord. For many, many, are perishing. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Teach us to be spent for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.